We hope to be, you know, one of the best wheel companies in the world. We've had a friend recently tell us you should, you know, have the end in mind when you start a business, which, you know, I don't think most people think like that. You know, a lot of times people start businesses because they're passionate about something. And that's truly our story is yeah. that, you know, we were passionate about cycling. We still are to this day, um, probably will be our entire life. Boyd and Nicole's story is nothing short of a public service campaign on the power of pursuing one's passion. When we sat down with them, the vibe was refreshingly candid and emotional. They are excited about the future and what they have and will accomplish. But it was palpable how happy they were to be doing this work together. It's a great example of the contrast between satisfaction, happiness, and meaningfulness. According to the Nobel Prize-winning psychologist Daniel Kahneman, people don't really want to be happy. They actually want to maximize their satisfaction with themselves and with their lives. And that often leads in completely different directions than the maximization of their happiness. Here's an example. In Kahneman's research, measuring the experiences that leave people feeling good, he found that spending time with friends was highly effective. Yet those focused on long-term goals that yield satisfaction, don't necessarily prioritize socializing as they're busy with the bigger picture. Happily, this is a choice Boyd and Nicole really haven't had to make. See, they happen to be husband and wife. They even bring their daughter into the business. She's often seen at events with them and is captured on social, promoting their products. We've touched on family and business in the past, but not necessarily with this lens. Taken through this frame, Boyd and Nicole's best accomplishment, arguably, is the business and lifestyle balance they've really achieved. They are both pursuing their mutual passion and doing so as a family, be it fleeting happy moments together or in the long-term memories of achieving a satisfying level of business success. That's the value of doing things that you love with the people that you love to be around. They refer to themselves as sales queen and head honcho, but let's hear what the Johnson family can teach us about leading a successful and meaningful business life. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura Quarter, Managing Director of South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. And I'm Joseph Nutter, co-founder of Design Sensory and Pop Fizz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South, they're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on invention, funding, entrepreneurship, growth, and so much more. We're a husband and wife team. Um, our business is going on 10 years old this year. And, you know, a lot of people ask me when I say that, they say, how is it working with your husband? It's got to be really tough. And my response is, you know, we actually really like each other. And, you know, I think our, our biggest thing um, is that we respect each other a lot and we don't confuse our roles with being married with being business partners. For Boyd and Nicole, marriage came before their business. And before that came their love for cycling, which brought them to Greenville, South Carolina. Yeah, so we actually, uh, when Nicole and I uh, started dating uh, in 2004, we both lived in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
And uh, it was a good city for you know, working if you worked for a company. Bike riding there was decent, but it was also getting very busy. And so we were in situations where we would have to ride through heavy traffic on our bikes for at least an hour to get to the good riding. Mm -hmm. And so I had been to Greenville many times to ride. Nicole had only done some races here around the old Donaldson Center Industrial Airport. So that's the <laughs> only thing she had ever seen of Greenville. And so I eventually came to her one day and I said, hey, what do you think about moving to Greenville? She goes, well, I think it's kind of a dump. It's like, I don't think this is gonna work out. Yeah. <laughs> and so I told her, I said, no, I need to come show you the real Greenville. And so we came here to go for a bike ride, parked at Furman, went up into the mountains. We ended up doing like an 85 mile bike ride through mm -hmm. the mountains and then uh, had, dinner, <laughs> had dinner afterwards downtown. And she's like, all right, we can move to this town. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it has become our home here. We have a ton of good friends. We love the riding here. They really support businesses. And I really can't see ourselves being in any other town except for Greenville. Like many passion projects, Boyd Cycling had the same humble beginnings as other startups. Operating out of the founder's home, learning how to run a business, and balancing it all with a day job. But Boyd and Nicole quickly came together, fully committed to Boyd Cycling. So I worked for, um, I was a recruiter. So basically, you know, at the time there was a, a lot of need for uh, computer software, coders, Java was big. So I did that. And then I went to work for a startup a company that did all the Microsoft certification. So I was the third employee hired for that organization. So it was really exciting. It's where I learned that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I worked about 80 hours a week at 24 years old. And so I started racing bikes to have a little balance of my life, which <laughs> probably not what I would recommend to most <laughs> rhythm balance. I was racing full-time. I was on a pro contract for 2008 and 2009. And uh, right when that pro contract was getting done, uh, I'd always been into bike wheels. So, you know, I took our sponsored wheels and I would rebuild them, uh, different spokes, different lacing patterns. I saw what made stuff good, what could be improved. And so at the end of my racing career in 2009, started contacting various manufacturers, getting samples in, and eventually told Nicole that I wanted to launch the company. Yeah, and I was actually working in the cycling industry. I was working for Hincapi Sportswear, and they had hired me to um, uh, run their retail channel. And so there I figured out, you know, how the industry worked and, you know, the way that buyers worked and just the whole, you know, dealer network. Um, and so once Boyd launched the company, I think two months went by, mm -hmm. and um, he came to me and said, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. So I um, struggled with the fact of giving up a really good job that I had in an industry that I loved to go full-time with Boyd. So I actually gave a two-month notice. And after 30 days, uh, Rich Hincapi was like, Nicole, you got to go do you know that business with Boyd. He's like, that's what I did. I get it. Just go have fun. And so January 2010 is mm -hmm. when we were working the business both full-time. And I always say failure was not an option. So we started out of our house um, online. We were one of the first companies in the industry that was selling direct to consumer on the internet. Um, you know, we'd call bike shops, but they'd say, who's Boyd? So there was really, you know, no place for us to, you know, develop the brand in that channel right away. And so we just focused on the consumer and grew the company that way initially. You know, we had just started the company and so nobody really knew who we were. And uh, this one guy out of California 
was like, you know, you're taking a chance. I like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And he ended up buying, it was two bike frames and three sets of wheels from us. And mm -hmm. it was, I think it was like a $5,000 sale. And it was like, <laughs> this is amazing. Like, this is all we have to do every month. And I remember telling Nicole, I'm like, all we have to do is sell three wheel sets every month and uh, we'll be okay. We can pay our mortgage and buy more wheels, which wasn't true. Yeah. <laughs> we needed more than that. So, yeah, I mean, I had never been in business for myself. Um, and so it was a, a lot of learning on the fly, um, you know, how to do this, how to run a business. Um, and then also how to make a good product while doing it. In the beginning, growth was slow and steady, but the husband and wife team would eventually catch a big break. I mean, you know, we were selling a couple wheel sets per week. You know, not today we've got to sell, you know, four or five wheel sets per day at least. So we actually had more free time. I was still racing full time in 2010. Uh, it was actually probably my best season that I ever had. But you know, it was just that steady, steady growth. And so, you know, if we sold 10, we would buy 20. We sold 20, we'd buy 40. We just kept on refunding the business. And it was uh, in 2010 that uh, we started working with the Michelin Development Program. We went through a round of funding with them and that really got us the inventory we needed to uh, get to the next level. Yeah, we, we doubled in size um, after that funding that we received. And we actually, we used to make bikes, handlebars, water bottle cages, and bicycle wheels. So we figured out very quickly that we needed to focus because we didn't have the cash flow that, you know, some companies do um, because we bootstrapped it from the beginning. So I think what I find so surprising about all of these businesses that we've been featuring is just that family seems to be a really key element of all of them. And we've got Krista Watry with uh, her sister, her sister-in-law, I'm sorry, um, Gabby Bowes, mother-daughter play, uh, John Michael with his brother. And now, you know, we've, we've got this this dynamic of, of a, a husband-wife team. And I just, I guess me personally, with we're selecting features for Scribble, I never expected the family portion of right. this to be such a critical part. Neither, neither did I. Uh, and I think we've got more to come too, do we not? We've got, we've got to think... Uh... Fab Fours is also another example of, of that of that family connection. I, I would agree with you. I, I was very surprised to see this pattern emerge as we started to meet with these people. And and um, I've actually been thinking about it a lot through this because because I kept wondering, you know, is that the norm? Is you know maybe the typical expectation is that it's it's not a lot of family in, in involvement in business um, or startup. Uh, but, but, but it's kind of this, this, this experience has kind of changed my mind on that. Um, you know, I kind of reflected on it more and, and thought, well, a lot of people have talked about trust, you know, trusting your, um, your founders or your partners, uh, in business is, is, is a, is a, an essential f uh, requirement. And so I guess it some ways goes hand in hand in that there might be that implied trust or a foundation of trust for family. And that's why it makes sense for that. But I do think it's a lot of work too, yeah. um, you know, and I think Nicole and, and Boyd, the other thing I think I, I kind of reflect on with them is that they, um, you, you could tell they knew what their strengths were individually and how they've kind of leaned into that in the roles that they have at their company. And I think that that's, it sounds like another duh comment, right? It's obvious, but but I don't know if it is obvious for a lot of people. She's clearly very, they're both passionate about it, about cycling. But Nicole is very extroverted. She loves to talk about the company. You can tell that 
um, that Boyd is. Um, He's the he's the cyclist. He's yeah. the athlete. Yeah, he's he's you know he's the geek, right? He he loves the engineering piece of that. He loves to talk about the aerodynamics, and and he just wants to sort of geek it out all day long. It was so great to meet them and just see both of them kind of do their roles the best that they could. And I think understanding your strengths, knowing what those are, um, and then leaning into them as a as a as a as a you know uh, as a team is probably what's making it work for them, don't you think? Yeah, I think as, as, as John Michael even described in his interview, I think he describes it as, as the muscle versus the brains. Yeah. Uh, I would think that's right. almost very similar to what we're, we're witnessing with, with Boyd Cycling. I think one of the other things that I found very interesting about their story was how they got their start, their their initial funding, uh, Laura. They talked about the, the Michelin uh, development program and 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 how they they were able to secure some some initial seed funding um with a it's actually quite a very innovative program um can you unpack that story a little bit more yes this is something actually i was not familiar with and i followed up with nicole directly around it and it sounds like this is something that michelin started to really uh actually help some of their employees transition into a new area of work and this is the michelin tire company right? yeah yeah headquartered uh, their north american headquarters are right there in the upstate um so they, they build some of their largest tires in the world right there um and uh so with that, you know, they created this program to help with basically small business loans. And uh, like I said, with them being located there in the upstate and such an integral part of the business community, they also made this available to uh, the community at large, not just uh, uh, former employees of theirs. So sounds like they just presented to their board and this is kind of they got off and started from there. But yeah, it all started with an industry backed grant. And Joseph, you guys seem to really talk about the whole grant process, uh, the Michelin grant program with them on site there. Can you go into a little more detail? Yeah, she, she you know, it was, she started out with, they had learned about it really in, in the local paper. Um, uh, they learned about the program that way. And uh, they, they had already had a, a somewhat of a business plan in place for that. They needed the money to fund their innovation. Um, you know, in particular Boyd, he knew he, he had some designs and he had some uh, uh, manufacturing that he had to have funding for. And so I, I, she talked about how they put a pitch together. They approached them, went through that process. It's, she said it was a very typical grant process. Um, and they were able to secure the funding that way. They're, they had to pay it back in three years. Um, and then uh, from what I, I gather, she, they did that successfully. And now they're actually looking to do more with Michelin, or I guess Michelin's looking to do more of them from the success of that. But I think that, you know, it, it, the other, I think the other key there is that, is that again, they, they looked at that funding uh, for growth, but they really needed it to, to take their product to the next level. Um, they both talked about how they needed the money to, to properly position their brand from a quality and engineering standpoint. And in the beginning, we were using uh, what they call an open mold rim. It's a rim that, you know, it was a good quality, we tested it, but it was available to other companies. And so we would always build them here in Greenville, uh, and it was really price driven. So in 2010, I think the average Goodwill set was anywhere from $2,400 to $3,000, and we were coming in at $1,000. And so because we were selling direct to consumer, you know, as we continued to innovate, uh, we came out with our own molds. The quality got better and better. And uh, that's where our pricing got higher with that. And we started going through a lot more dealers. 
and that's what really started driving the business. However, sometimes quality isn't always enough to fully separate yourself from competitors. In Boyd and Nicole's case, it also took a deep understanding of their industry and a few bets. When we decided we wanted to focus on wheels, we said, all right, if we're gonna do this, we want to do it the best. We wanna have really good products. Customer service was always a priority. And so I started drawing up different rim shapes. You know, back then in 2010, everything was a really narrow rim designed for 21 millimeter tires. And we could see that the trend was going to be towards larger and larger tires, wider rims to get a better tire shape. And so we, you know, invested quite a bit in tooling to come out with fairly wide rims at that point. And once we did that, it put us on a whole other level because after we started, there was a lot of other companies that came in and were doing the same thing that we were doing, uh, you know, buying rims. Sometimes, you know, our competitors would have the same rim as us. And so this was something that really differentiated us from the competition. Why do you think that, that you were able, is, was it just you anticipating maybe where demand would be and being able to get there quicker than, than other people? Yep, and that's something that uh, you know, I think we do really well here is we look at the trends and we analyze and we're able to kind of see what's gonna happen before it happens in the industry. It's almost like uh, having the crystal ball of uh, that innovation is you know being able to recognize what is coming, what's next, and then how do you make it for what's coming next. Soon, it came time to transition the business out of their home and start to build a larger team. When we started the company, we started in our house because it didn't make any sense to put capital towards a space when we were doing everything online. So within a year and a half, we had product all over our house. We couldn't sit down in the living room to watch TV. <laughs> you know, it was one of those things where it was like, okay, we probably should do something different. So we rented a warehouse that was walking distance from our home and it had no heat and no AC. And we actually had uh, a wheel builder who is a, a dear friend of mine who um, she would build the wheels at her house. So we would drop them off in the morning and then we would pick them up you know, one to two days later after she hand built them. And so she was willing to come to a location because we were starting to get busy where doing all this driving around wasn't quite efficient. So yeah, we moved into that place and then within six months, we were maxed out. You know, Boyd and I were doing everything with the cleaning the wheels, specking the wheels, shipping them, working with the customers, doing the accounting, the marketing. And then she was doing a lot as well. So we hired another wheel builder. And so then we started to get to the point where we thought, oh my gosh, we are responsible for other people. And you can only think about it for a second or it'll mm -hmm. completely, you know, <laughs> put you in a dark place. So we just, we've just forged ahead. You know, like I said earlier, once we made the decision to do this, you know, we decided this is the American dream. Like, we have the ability to drive our own destiny and take people along with us who are willing to you know, go on this journey. So then within another year, we found another place that had heat and air, <laughs> and it was um, on the rabbit trail. And the gentleman that we rented from told us, he said, I'll you know, outfit the place the way that you need it. And so we moved in there, and that tripled our rent. We went from uh, the original building with no heat, no AC was uh, $400 a month. Yeah, so. yeah. So then we had a big rent and we had three employees plus Boyd and I, and I just had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> we decided to throw a kid in the mix with all this. <laughs> so, you know, we just kept going and the brand just kept growing. You know, we kept 
connecting with teams and, you know, showing that the product was high quality. And because we were hand building it, that really put us in a place where people saw us as a custom outfit. So we're designing our own shapes, our own hubs, and then we were hand building. So it just is a craft that people started to really respect. I I love that Nicole has used the word choice of craft when she's talking about their tire and their building process. I think for most of us in the general public, we think of a tire as just a utilitarian uh, necessity, not even something that we give a lot of of thought to. But for them, this is this is an art form, and you really have a greater appreciation for what you roll around on on a daily basis now. Just listening to them, uh, as they now refer to it as a craft. When we were filming, there was a gentleman in the background, um, and he was, I think what he was doing was sort of pulling the wires and balancing the tire. Um, I think the word craft is very appropriate for, in terms of what you're talking about for them. Um, you're right. They, 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 I mean, it was just mesmerizing watching this guy go back and forth on this wheel, and he would t- sort of turn it, twirl it. And by doing so, he would sort of see where it was in and out of balance. And you could definitely see where his art was coming in on that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the other thing that's great about listening to them talk about, I love this part of um, conversations with, with, with entrepreneurs when they talk about the early days, mm-hmm. you know, what they were able to get away with and, and what, what they were struggling with. Um, they're, they're, and then the, the fear. There's always that, that scare of kind of like, we've got this vision you know, often it's a very much a craft-oriented one. In order to get there, we are going to have to take some more risk. But what that risk means is we're going to have to bring people on. You know, we're going to have a payroll. And (laughs) you get that sort of just fear of, I'm now responsible for people, like she said. Um, You know, they're responsible for bringing their A game. It's going to magically, you know, evolve our brand to a a better competitive spot. Um, I love that. It's it's just so fun to see what people do to chase a dream and often to chase craft. Um, and it's so great. And it's so on display with, with Nicole and Boyd, too. After the break, how Boyd and Nicole approach product design and how they continue to build their company to this day. This podcast is part of Scribble. South Carolina's voice of innovation. We celebrate and support the innovative activity across the state by connecting people to people. Visit ScribbleSC.com for exclusive interviews, tools, and resources. That's ScribbleSC.com. Let's take a step back and talk about what goes into making a wheel and how the duo approach design. You know, when we look at wheel design, there's three main components of a bicycle wheel. The hub is at the center, and uh, that's the part that spins with the bearings in there. The spokes connect the hub to the rim, and then the rim is what the tire attaches to, and it's also what sees the most airflow. So the aerodynamic aspect of that is extremely important. So when we're designing stuff, like uh, looking at rim shapes, it's a lot of aerodynamic properties, but then also you've got to make it structurally sound. You don't want to have a rim that falls apart when you hit your first bump. A lot of the wheels that we sell are made out of carbon fiber. And so carbon fiber is actually almost like a yarn material and it gets mixed with a uh, resin to make a prepreg. And so that will get cut up into pieces, laid into a shape and then cured at high heat and pressure to form the rim shape. 
and we've worked together with a factory on coming up with rim designs and really looking into, you know, how is this going to make the best possible wheel. Uh, then when everything is done, it comes here to Greenville, South Carolina, and that's where we do the assembly, warehousing, and shipping. A hand-built wheel is is what you want. You know, a machine, a lot of companies will build the wheels with machines, and what happens with the machine is they zip the wheel up much faster than you do if you were hand-building it, which puts undue stress on the wheel. And so that's where, you know, over time, spokes can break prematurely, you know, whereas when we're building by hand, and we have lots of people that have our wheels for many, many years now and have never had to true the wheel, which is a big deal, because, you know, with cycling, you can hit potholes and sidewalks mm -hmm. and different things, so. When Boyd designed the company's first wheel, he was still doing a bit of guesswork. But as time went on, he got more serious about product design and it paid off. The first revision of shapes that we did, it was, you know, I did an interview with a cycling company and I really said, you know, we got lucky. We drew up something that, you know, I kind of knew was going to be fast, but we didn't really know. And so we took it to the wind tunnel, which is how you test how aerodynamic something is, and it did really well. The next batch, I said, you know, being lucky is good, but, <laughs> you know, having a plan is better. And so I hired a, a good friend of mine. He's basically a rocket scientist. Uh, he's got his PhD in aerodynamics from Purdue University. And so mm -hmm. he came down and uh, we started drawing up rim shapes and he did a computer fluid dynamic analysis on it. We drew up 30, 35 different rim shapes, ran analysis. When we found the best ones, we actually made physical prototypes out of solid aluminum, brought that to the wind tunnel, and then tested against all the other competitors. And so once we realized that we had the fastest rim out there, that's when we opened up the tooling for our next model. Those are still the models that we have going nowadays and still one of the fastest rims in the world. Boyd and Nicole not only received support from friends, but also from organizations in the city and the state. So, you know, we've really received a lot of support from organizations in the state of South Carolina. One in particular is called Next, and they're an innovation center based here in Greenville. And their whole goal is to work with the up and coming entrepreneurs who typically have IP, um, who, you know, maybe have really good knowledge about their product, but not necessarily all the knowledge that they need to have a successful business. And they've connected us with, with different people. One in particular was SC Launch and SCRA, which is another amazing group that's focused on economic development. And they do rounds of funding that's typically, they do some grants, but you know, we were able to work with them um, through a loan program. And, and again, you know, offering working capital so we could grow the brand to a point where we're making a huge impact on South Carolina, hopefully someday. And I do believe that you know, having access to resources like that has advanced us much faster than if we were to do it on our own. You know, Boyd and I joke, we say, you know, we just, we realized early on in, in this venture that we, we don't know everything. We really like to know, you know, what we don't know. And it's very important to know as a business owner when you don't know something and not be afraid to ask for help. One of the programs from Next that we've been really fortunate to take part of is their mentoring program. And we meet pretty much monthly with a group of mentors who are established business leaders in the Greenville area and they really have us working on the business instead of in the business. And so, mm -hmm. you know, when you're a small company and you've got to wear a lot of hats and do a lot of things, you tend to kind of get lost working in your business to make it happen every day. And so they're trying to get that big picture view of 
-hmm. You know, what are you going to do to make your business profitable and sustainable, not just what are you going to do to make this day sustainable? So I I love that this group has um, been able to directly participate in Next uh, mentoring program. This is something actually uh, that Commerce, my office uh, through Commerce, helped actually experiment with Next through a grant program. Um, Next came to the state with, with recognizing We've got all these entrepreneurs. We know they need mentoring, but we can't just turn them loose. And, and from my personal experience coming from a, working at a technology incubator, uh, it, is, it is harder than what it sounds. Uh, mainly, you've got very passionate entrepreneurs that sometimes don't want to take critique or sometimes panic in the middle of the night. And, you know, they're going to make those phone calls. And, and, and of course, from the mentor standpoint, they've got their own lives. They don't, they don't want that either. And also from the mentoring side, what can be really complicated is just managing the relationship itself. So you're talking about usually your best mentors are had major success of some kind and, and maybe even have their own ideas. And so how do you almost even keep them from giving business advice, which might sound a little counterintuitive. Um, really what you want the mentor to be doing is to provide the, the right kind of environment and the questions so that the the mentee or the entrepreneur comes to the answer on their own. Giving business advice can turn into finger pointing, which now you've got really bad potential situation. Um, so it's like business therapy. Really. It's business therapy. But so so anyways, next it found this this service called MIT's Venture Mentoring Service. And um, they'd sent me some information about it. I was like, hmm, I'm intrigued. I wish I had known about this like six, seven years ago. Let's see. Let's see if it works. And so they've been doing this now for a, a few years, and they've seen some phenomenal results. And, and I'll say it's not for every entrepreneur. This is something that, you know, every, every mentoring um, – session is a group session of fellow mentors to create transparency. In fact, they don't even publicly uh, ever list who their mentors are to protect the mentors. Um, and for the, the entrepreneur, they have a very outlined uh, kind of protocols of, of what's appropriate, what's not. Anyways, um, so, you know, for me, as somebody that's helped from the get-go with the project to hear directly from an entrepreneur that they benefited from it and that that's something that the state was willing to kind of take that calculated risk and trying, what that's now done, um, in fact, back in the spring, we had MIT come down uh, to kind of present what this service was because with next success with it, others from across the state were wanting to learn more about it. And so now we're in some early conversations, but we might actually be the first state to have a network of these throughout the state. Um, and that intrigues MIT greatly. So what, you know, you've learned a little bit more about this program. What, what, is, what is fundamentally different about MIT's approach than, you know, your typical EO or, or you know, mentorship piece? You mentioned, first of all, it's a group facilitated experience mm-hmm. right is, is i guess that's a cornerstone that makes it different yeah there that's part of it i would also say you know even the the mentors go through an actual training session themselves on how to be a good mentor and i would say from an from somebody that's trying to manage an ecosystem what i heard most frequently from those that have been actively mentoring is that they feel like this has been a very productive way for them to give back to be a we know how to be a mentor you know we we know we're not going to get phone calls at one o'clock in the morning um and that a lot of them are even willing to drive let's say an hour hour and a half because all of their sessions are scheduled so they know kind of going into it this is this is my day to kind of 
give back and be a mentor uh, to the fellow entrepreneurial ecosystem. But then also there's a fellow camaraderie that kind of comes with. This is also my day to kind of catch up with maybe some fellow, you know, business business guys and girls. Um, so they enjoy kind of the social aspect of it as well. I would say another key part of it that I heard from from MIT was, you know, they actually tried, you know, all of this is in person. None of it's ever remote. And they tried it and they felt like it didn't work well. You didn't get right. the same level of intimacy and kind of conversation and dialogue going uh, when you had certain people kind of uh, video conferencing in or anything like that. Um, I was another key element that they really protect is uh, investment. So a lot of times mentors, you know, depending on their motivation, might see this as an opportunity for kind of finding things before they're big, right? Um, and, and and again, like that happens from time to time. And and MIT has has procedures in place for you know removing somebody once they are have made that investment, um, and if it kind of becomes a consistent occurrence, they're kind of then off ramped as a as a mentor altogether. So those are even delicate conversations that they go through training of from an administrative standpoint of how do you how do you remove or off ramp is the is the word they prefer, but how do you off ramp somebody that's you know you want to still be a part of your startup community, but maybe right. not at that capacity. Right. Right. No, I, I find it very inspiring, actually, to, to hear that, uh, you know, referencing a conversation from earlier in the season on this podcast, um, being an entrepreneur is a very anxiety, lonely, lonely filled role. And so I, I can I can understand sort of both the fast, you know, one side of that is that social, uh, safe social space where you can co- sort of commiserate with other people um, and, and have that uh, that shoulder to lean on, especially if you're a singular founder or, you know, you don't have a partner. Um, and then the other side of that is, is I've, at least I've found it for myself, it, when, you, when you're able to be on the other side, when you're able to provide advice or teach, Often it's providing you the most benefit. It, yeah. it makes if I've, I've found it brings clarity to my problems, or it, it brings clarity to, to issues that I'm facing by being able to sort of talk about it abstractly with someone else. So yeah. So now building out, like I said, we MIT doesn't have an example of, of another, uh, not only just state, but let's just say larger population that's attempted this, but building out a network of sites of this that have, you know, individually still catered to their local entrepreneurs. But with with South Carolina being population-wise the size of Atlanta, you know, one of our biggest difficulties is just actually really spread out. Um, So how do we plug in maybe potentially really fantastic mentors that might not have a a really strong entrepreneurial base in them at the time? so this serves as a way, since there, a lot of them are willing to travel, to plug them in and bring them into the fold so they can have a role. Uh, is there some requirement for participation in, in this program with Next and MIT? Do you, do you have to have several years operating under you? Or can you, can you get this mentorship you know, six months into, into a business? So uh, yes, Next has, um, and, and along with MIT, has some guidelines as to who is the best kind of entrepreneur to participate. Because it's not, it's not right for everybody. And I'll say that's true on both sides of this equation. Um, I mean, not every entrepreneur is going to like something that's so structured. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they have to have agendas for all of their meetings. Okay. So, this is, so um, in fact, even out of the almost 200 companies Next supports, I believe only about 15 actually participate 
in the in program, program. Mm-hmm, okay. directly. So that's this. That's what I mean by it's just different and it's very intimate. Um, and but that's why it's successful at the same time. They, you know, they've got somebody on on next staff. I, I say everybody needs a Brenda now. Uh, shout out to Brenda. Um, <laughs> Uh, everyone needs a Brenda on their staff because she's been the real caregiver to this this program uh, and handle those very delicate conversations that sometimes need to have, need to be made. Um, so it's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but once you start pulling back the layers, you understand why it works the way that it does. In the early days, do you have any any stories of failures or? or uh... Oh, we have a great one. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had a. You learn uh, through failure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, failure is definitely a better teacher than success. Um, and we had a uh, we had a hub design that we came out with. Uh, we started working on it in about 2013. It was going to be a made in the U.S. hub. And it was something that we worked on for a couple years. It had a Three bunch years. of uh, <laughs> really unique features to it. I mean, it was a system where the rear hub actually had two axles in it and some really cool technology in there. And then kind of ignored a couple of red flags in the production of it, some tolerances that were being missed. And uh, we released it and then immediately had to do a recall on it and got back. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, we didn't sell thousands of them, but we had to get back about 200 hub sets. So that was definitely a big lesson on, you know, if you see those red flags happening, don't ignore them just because you're passionate about something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you, were you able to resolve it? That's one of the things that actually, you know, got us through pretty good is our dedication to customer service. We took care of every single person. We covered the shipping back to us. We rebuilt it with new hubs. We shipped it back to the consumer. In most cases, they were only out without their wheel set for three to four days. And so it cost us a lot of money, but we have happy customers because of it. And we were able to take, you know, the good pieces of the design from that and innovate our newest hub called the 85, which is named after a famous brewery here in Greenville. And so that's where we say, you know, like some of these challenges that that happened, we were able to pick ourselves up and have something, you know, Mm -hmm. apply it to new innovation with success. Yeah, you know, now that our business is 10 years old, you know, starting out again, you know, the advice that I would give someone is just, you know, take a deep breath every day. Don't try to control every aspect of the business. You know, just appreciate where you are in the moment because it's all going to be okay. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot that I wish I would have known early on, especially with never running a business before. And so there's some stuff that, you know, I wish I would have taken the time as far as you know, like accounting and forecasting and supply chain and learning that aspect of it would definitely be beneficial. On a recent episode, Jack Peck of Fast Fetch Corporation told us something similar. Being a business generalist can be immensely valuable when starting a company. Boyd and Nicole gave us a few other pieces of advice on staying innovative. Yeah, the tools that, you know, I think in today's world that are, you know, just really crucial are obviously, you know, your cell phone, your your iPad, your, you know, the basic tools with technology. But I find, you know, um, for myself, it's just, you know, trying to be pretty organized, you know, in running a business, you get pulled in a lot of different directions. And so time is really the main resource that you have. And so if you don't have any control of your time, you'll get to the end of the day not accomplishing nearly um, what you need to do and you know for me you know the main, the main purpose or the main um, job that I have every day 
is to sell wheels, is to drive revenue. And so I don't have any room for error. <laughs> so I would say time is key. You know, I'm involved a lot with the wheel building. And so obviously the tools to build the wheels are the stuff that we need. As far as running the business, I mean, my calendar, putting everything on the calendar. I mean, it's almost to the point where I'm scheduling when do I need to drink water, <laughs> so. Time as a tool for, for innovation, I it, it seems so simplistic, but at the same time, I feel like the, you know we can get so caught up on the, the gadgets and the technology of how to actually do something that in reality, on a daily basis, our time is the most precious thing. And I feel like just from my personal experience of watching entrepreneurs, I feel so rushed, you know, to get something out there or, you know, we've got, we're, we're running out of funds, we've got to start getting, you know, revenue positive, blah, blah, blah. And it's, you know, how do you just Take that breath. The grind. Yeah, yeah, and, and 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 really organize yourself so that you're using your current resources to the best of their capacity, or are not feeling as rushed, you know, to get something to the market because you're gonna feel like if they, if they're first that they're gonna win, and in reality that's usually not the case at all. That you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from somebody that does make it to the market first, and uh, so I just I love that they have really recognized the preciousness of time in building their business. Yeah, and it was interesting to see both of them kind of embody different approaches to time right again that it's so it's so neat to see Nicole on one hand sort of just echoing that sentiment of breathe take a minute you know focus in and then and then Boyd you know I've got a schedule time for for me to take a you know a, a, a break um, you know because he's sort of that that engineering geek who just wants to make you know some great stuff and then she's looking at it almost in a holistic way. way yeah i think it's an interesting ego id thing I, I always look at the same the, the struggle on on my time that way you know the things i need to do versus the things i want to do and um and i'm sure it's the same for everybody where you know the things that you want to do more often than not are are things that you're super passionate about you're probably going to find um, the next best idea there. Um, it's probably something that you're going to spend yourself on without even thinking about it. And then, of course, all the things on the need to do side, the discipline uh, for running a business, the things that have to ha you know, be done in order to ensure the proper organization for things equally as important. Um, and, and then finding you know, the, the right people or the partners who are great at the need to do's versus the want to do's or the have to do's. Um, I just think it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a, it's certainly the, the challenge that confronts everybody every day. Um, and, and time is right in the middle of that. And you've just got to decide which one's more important at that point in time. Right. Um, at least that's how I've seen it, um, play out for, for, for folks that I've met and for myself as well. I think it's also fun to see their work life, you, you know, when she starts talking about, I think later on about how they've, they've got a daughter and they bring her along to everything and they integrate her in their business and what they do. It sort of echoes something that another favorite of yours, right, Laura, Mary Beth Westmoreland, when she talked about work-life integration, it's not a balancing act. It's really just life. Life. Her name is Olive, and she's six years old now. So, you know, when, when the business really started to take off is when I had her. And so, you know, I literally took one week off to figure out how to nurse her, and then I pretty much strapped her to my chest, and off we went. And so, you know, all of our family lives up north, and so we just didn't really have a choice. So we didn't think about it. We just took her with us. And so, you know, we've seen her really just evolve as a little person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
with our family life, we do it a little bit differently than a lot of other people, even a lot of the other you know, family people in the industry, because it's her and I at all the shows. So mm -hmm. everybody in the industry knows our daughter. Uh, we bring we her to all the trade us. shows. Uh, mm -hmm. She was in San Diego last week at a trade show, and mm -hmm. she's been to you know, four Euro bikes, five inner bikes. We've brought her to China, Taiwan. And so mm -hmm. everybody in the industry has kind of seen her grow up and they know us as we are the family company because our family is always coming to these shows together. Mm -hmm. And for me, mm -hmm. you know, the business is great. Family's more important. And the fact that I can bring my family on the road with me to these trade shows and we get to hang out, that's amazing. We already know she's going to be our boss someday. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah. you know, we kind of want to show her, uh, you know, what it takes to run a business and the hard work of it. We have one show, we have a video where she has her gymnastics leotard on with a tutu skirt and she's <laughs> waving my card going, who wants board wheels? And so we didn't teach her that, you know, it was just something where she sees mommy and daddy working really hard and she tells people at school, she's like, my daddy makes really fast wheels. And, <laughs> you know, so it's it's been really cool and we feel so grateful that we've been able to take her along with us and for her to see the world literally. Does she bike? She does. Yeah. <laughs> she already has three bikes. <laughs> I'm Nicole. And I'm Boyd. And those, those were, were our notes, notes on innovation. innovation. This has been Of Note, a podcast that gets up close and personal with innovative people so we can learn from their successes and failures. I'm Joseph Nuther. And I'm Laura Quarter. Of Note is an original production by the South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation and Design Sensory. Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering with original music by Matt Honkinen. Check out more interviews, our blog, and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Ready, Set, Scribble. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, keep pursuing your transformational ideas. Next time on Of Note. Originally on Microspheres was probably 10 years ago, but it stayed in the complex and was not in public uh, for probably uh, three, four years. About 10 years ago, we had our first allowed publication, appeared on a, a cover of a magazine, and in it was saying that this is technology, that it's breakthrough technology in the fields of security, environmental remediation, and medicine. And then the phone started ringing off the hook. And I was thinking it might be people that wanted to partner with us and had money, 99% of those phone calls was people that wanted free samples. Mm -hmm.